1: Hello, and uh, welcome to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Evan Zarkadis, your host, uh, and in today's episode, I am very excited to be talking with Dr. Joel Anderson, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Maine, to talk about his new book, Reimagining Christendom, Writing Iceland's Bishops into the Roman Church, 1200 to 1350, published in 2023 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Dr. Anderson is a historian of medieval Europe, uh, and, and his research revolves around issues of communication, imagination, and authority in the high and late medieval church. Hello, Joel, and welcome to the show. Hello, Evan.
0: Thanks so much for having me on. This is a real pleasure.
1: It is, it is a pleasure for me indeed. Uh, I you mentioned, that uh, you were my um, master's advisor, so it's definitely uh, an honor to be able to uh, give you uh, this interview.
0: Well, it's an honor to be able to speak with you and to, to chat more about medieval history, which we've um, spent plenty of time doing.
1: Absolutely, yes. And um, this was my first um, book on anything to do with medieval Iceland. So, from that, I, I want to say that the book read very well. Um, I was really, I was really intrigued by the way um, you connected the local examples that you were using. Um, and the local stories and the manuscripts that that you worked on, with the broader Christendom, medieval Europe, and some of those themes that were going on at that, at that time. So I, I was really engaged with with, with that. So uh, I just want I, I just wanted to put that out there.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's what the book tries to do. So I'm glad that um, resonated with you.
1: Perfect. Yes. So the book is about medieval Iceland uh, and Christianity, of course, the Christendom, the expansion of Christendom um, and the spread to medieval Iceland from the 12th century through the middle of the 14th century. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how did you come to this book theme, book idea? Where did this whole process and research uh, start? Great.
0: Yeah, I can uh, uh, start uh, back a ways and uh, talk you through um, how this book came to be. But um, it's a product of my, um, you know, studies over the last uh, couple of decades or so. It's kind of scary to think that it's been that much time. But um, I uh, did my undergraduate work at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, had a terrific uh, uh, advisor there um, who sort of encouraged me to... um, to study further. Uh, his name was uh, Michael Jones. Uh, I did a couple of um, different master's programs after graduating from Bates, um, one uh, at the University of Oslo and the other at the University of Iceland. And these two master's programs um, introduced me to the genre of texts that are at the very center of my book, um, namely the Icelandic um, bishops' sagas. So Uh, The Bishop's Sagas are uh, essentially biographies of Iceland's bishops um, written in the 13th and 14th centuries uh, compared to their um, celebrated cousins, the Sagas of Icelanders. The Bishop's Sagas have have received comparatively little um, scholarly attention, but um, really from my first encounter with these sagas as a master's student, I found them to be fun, uh, inventive, uh, quirky, uh, and really worthy of of, of close scholarly attention. And so uh, the time I spent at uh, Cornell University, where I did my Ph.D. under um, Oren Falk, was time spent uh, thinking about how to situate uh, the Icelandic bishop sagas in some wider um, historical and uh, uh, historiographical contexts. And so the era that I write about in the book uh, is is the era between roughly 1200 and 1350. It's an era in which government is kind of growing uh, across Europe, especially written government. So government uh, through uh, documents and literacy and administration. Um, Within the medieval church, this is also the era of the so-called papal monarchy, Um, So that's a notion that the Pope sort of rules over the church um, just as a king or a queen um, rules over their kingdom. And the kind of standard um, historiographical narrative of uh, this era in the Roman church uh, is that it's one in which um, the Roman church is sort of extending uh, its authority and um, uh, subjecting peripheral churches, including the Norse church. Um, to that authority, uh, especially through uh, kind of written administration and written government. And the the bishop sagas that I was reading, these Icelandic bishop sagas, I think told a a more interesting and more um, complex story, a story about how um, Icelanders, on the one hand, were kind of aligning themselves with the Roman church and with the papacy, um, but were also sort of repurposing and using and adapting uh, its authority to suit um, local ends and to advance agendas that didn't necessarily resonate with um, the agendas of um, the popes in Rome and other um, central planners in the Mm -hmm. church. And so that's a kind of dynamic that I try to um, illuminate uh, in my book, which I've titled um, Reimagining Christendom. So reimagining Christendom in the sense of how Icelandic clerics reimagined what it meant to belong to medieval Christendom, but also reimagining Christendom in the sense of how we as, as historians, as scholars, might um, kind of rethink uh, and reinterpret the dominant characteristics of medieval Christendom. Um, when we examine it, for instance, uh, from the perspective of, uh, medieval Iceland and its bishops sagas.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Quite a long process. Yeah. It definitely, um, uh, took, took, took your, your course of time in, into developing it and, and finally, um, putting it into a book format. Mm-hmm. Um, how many were the bishop, um, sagas? How many did you study or, or is it uh, one particular collection of documents?
0: Yeah, there are um, several bishop sagas. Uh, A a table in the back of the book uh, helpfully sort of um, catalogs them. Um, But there are um, sagas of um, uh, Jon Ogmunderson, a bishop saint, in a couple different uh, redactions. Uh, Sagas of another bishop saint, uh, Thorlauker uh, Thorholtzson, again in a couple of different redactions, a couple different versions, that is. Uh, there's a work called uh, Hungervaka, literally um, like the hunger waker or almost a, a kind of appetizer, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is really what the title means. It's meant to sort of um, whet the reader's appetite for more uh, about the, um, the lives and biographies of the um, bishops of Skålholt, that's the um, uh, southern uh, episcopal see in Iceland. Um, then there are a couple sagas devoted uh, to Bishop Guthwunder Arason, uh, sagas uh, that relate, or, or a single saga, I should say, relating to uh, Bishop Oni uh, Thorlauksen. Uh, and then also uh, a work that I'm very fond of, uh, 14th century work devoted to the life of uh, Bishop mm-hmm. Laurentius Kalfson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's a pretty broad genre uh, across several different um centuries and several different bishops uh should say i mean there are other works that could be kind of uh, affiliated with the genre um and uh, uh certainly icelandic bishops uh who don't uh, uh get their own saga so it's, it's somewhat mixed but it's a um uh, a recognized genre uh, within the field of saga studies from the 19th century or so. Uh, first editors uh, dubbed them the "Biskupa uh the sagas of bishops, and that label has kind of.
1: Okay. Yes, and uh, I definitely, um, I definitely saw the sagas in many ways, um, and the way you describe it in the future in, in some of the future um, chapters of the book. Um, the way that we're created, which was really interesting. Um, there's a lot of uh, wordplay. There's a lot of uh, let's write things a particular way. So they make our own case study uh, or, or to, to bring our point across the table more than something else, uh, switch some words around. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, the process of um, creating these sagas at that particular time and then the impact that they had. Because I know, um, with uh, as you described with uh, some of the bishops of Iceland, there was a lot of like, for example, were they allowed to be married? Were, 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 were Some of these laws that, that came into contrast and a lot of negotiation as you talk um, with um, the center, which was uh, Rome, the, the center of, of, of the Catholic Church.
0: Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that, Evan. Um, in terms of how they're they're created, um, that's that's an excellent question. Um, you know, it should be said that uh, the the writers of the bishop sagas are um, they're writing primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in Norse, um, uh, so in the the local vernacular. But they're dealing with subjects that are kind of um, you know, recognized subjects of um, literary composition across medieval Europe. So that is to say, lives of saintly bishops um, exist uh, in Latin uh, that serve as kind of models for the bishop sagas, uh, as do um, lives of, of not so saintly bishops. So um, uh, the, the gesta of, of bishops; these these exist in Latin as well. So. I think we have to imagine that the first writers of of the Bishop Sagas are uh, familiar with these um, Latin genres and and drawing on them uh, when they're um, when they're writing uh, their works. Um, A point that I try to make in the book uh, uh, in various ways, too, is that um, the Bishop Sagas are kind of written against the backdrop of the kind of growing use of writing and government and the growing use of documents in the medieval church. And this forms a really important context for what's happening um, in many different sagas. And I'm really interested in the ways in which the, the bishop sagas kind of represent and play with um, uh, documents of various kinds, uh, papal documents, documents issued by the archbishop um, so on and so forth. Um, and to the second part of your question, I think, um, the, the sagas themselves serve as kind of, um, platforms for their writers to, um, to sort of negotiate the relationship between their, um, local Icelandic clerical culture and the kind of, um, uh, culture that's uh, emanating from the Roman church. And as you sort of point out, there's, there's some kind of obvious disconnects between these two things, obvious disconnects right. and obvious uh, dissonances. Um, the, the most obvious one is, is perhaps the fact that Iceland's bishops uh, are um, often, not uh, exclusively, but often married um, into the 13th century. Uh, and this is extraordinarily late to find, um, you know, married uh, uh, bishops uh, anywhere in um, medieval Europe. Kind of clerical celibacy is always kind of technically the rule. It's, it's um, uh, enforced and advocated for more and more uh, following the uh, Gregorian reform uh, movement in the 11th century. Uh, And yet uh, uh, bishops in Iceland are still married, indeed happily married, uh, one saga tells us, uh, into the 13th century. So I see the bishop sagas as a kind of uh, space where their writers are trying to figure out, like, you know, how do we deal with this, right? On the one hand, we you know, we want uh, to recognize ourselves and our protagonists as um, good, upstanding uh, bishops, as uh, members of the Roman church, as, um, you know, followers of Christendom. On the other hand, they're quite obviously at odds with some of the, the most basic rules for, you know, what it means to, to be a bishop. And what I try to show in the book is the ways in which, um, writers of the bishop sagas managed to, um, to, to kind of thread that needle. Um, so, for instance, uh, in Chapter 2, I talk about the case of um, Jón uh an uh, uh, Icelandic bishop saint uh, who was a bishop in the 12th century. Um, his vitae, though, his, his biographies are from the 13th and 14th centuries, um, and he has the distinction of uh, having married uh, not once, but twice. Um, uh, so in the eyes of canon law, he's technically a bigamist. Uh, bigamy in medieval canon law doesn't mean uh, having two wives at the same time, as it, as it probably does for us today. Uh, but it also refers to uh, having uh, uh, remarried after the death of uh, one's first wife, as uh, was the case for Bishop Yon. Um, so this is a serious, uh, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but a serious, serious irregularity um, from the perspective of um, the Roman church, from the perspective of uh, medieval canon law. So it's a, it's an irregularity that should have disqualified Jon from even becoming a priest, um, much less a Bishop, much less a Saint. So the, you know, the dilemma then posed to his hagiographer hey, is, is how do we make sense of this? How can we, um, how can we have reverence for this figure uh, in spite of the fact that he's uh, had two wives? And uh, as I argue in the book, uh, the main way that they do this is by um, kind of um, crafting uh, this story uh, about the bishop's um, a journey to Rome uh, after his election. So um, a journey to Rome where he supposedly receives a papal dispensation uh, that allows him to become a bishop. Uh, in spite of the fact that he's a bigamist, in spite of the fact that he's had uh, two wives. Uh, It's evidence more broadly of of the dynamic that I'm trying to um, illuminate really at the center of the book, which is the ways in which these Icelandic clerics are, um, again, reimagining what it means to belong to the Roman church. Uh, In a sense, they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too, right? Uh, They're trying to... um, on the one hand, acknowledge the authority of the Pope. Uh, acknowledge that he has the authority to grant a dispensation that suspends the the rules that would otherwise um, prohibit a twice married man uh, from becoming a bishop, which is again a quite serious matter uh, from a medieval. Christian perspective. So on the one hand, they're they're sort of acknowledging papal authority, but clearly they're using that, uh, in order to advance an agenda that doesn't exactly resonate with, um, uh, uh, the, um, you know, advocates of the, um, Gregorian reform, uh, doesn't advocate, uh, doesn't resonate with, um, uh, the vision for the church that is being sort of, um, formulated in Rome. Rather, they're using papal authority there uh, to, to kind of grant uh, licitness and legitimacy to uh, a bishop uh, who otherwise would kind of be uh, outside of the law, uh, mm-hmm. to grant legitimacy to a kind of local uh, Icelandic saint, uh, whom they um, revere greatly.
1: Yeah, um, I think the, I think that was one of my favorite points of the, of the of the book, um, and some of these examples. It's like it reminded me a lot of us in in today's society, where we might hear something and then we might apply it different ways, and it depends on what we want to get out of it. Like there were there were certain um, dictates by by Rome that um, the. I believe the bishops of, of Iceland were like, yeah, the Pope doesn't really mean this; he means something else. So let's go that way. And then uh, in the in the example that you just pointed, uh, they're going directly to the Pope to receive the authority and, and legitimacy. So um, it's really unique to see that um, from a historical perspective, but also from a you know, um, you know, we're, 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 we're all humans at the end in many ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt to me that that a papal bull, so the the uh, document uh, issued from the Roman Curia, is a kind of powerful signifier of authority uh, across the Norse world uh, in the 13th and 14th centuries, um, and uh, the writers of the bishop sagas, uh, you know, would kind of fully agree with that point. But what I try to show in the book is that the kind of content that a papal bull can be attached to is something that Icelandic writers are willing to sort of um, reimagine and reinterpret uh, mm-hmm. uh, along the lines that you described, along the lines that um, very much resonate with their own local agendas and not with um, the ideas of, um, of the Roman church's central planners. So another right. good example of that is uh, uh, this other Icelandic bishop, uh, subject of chapter three, um, Guðmundur Arason. Um, He uh, finds himself um, in exile in uh, Norway uh, twice during uh, his life, and the um, archbishops of Norway uh, uh, are quite skeptical of him for various kinds of reasons, and uh, his sagas tell us that they make the determination, or one of them makes the determination, that um, Guzminder can't continue holding the Episcopal office um, unless he gets a dispensation from Uh, from the Pope, uh, uh, much like um, in the case of Jon Ogmunderson. So then the saga has this delightful tale uh, in which Guthmunder sends a messenger to Rome. Um, That messenger uh, sort of feels very out of place at the Roman Curia because he's not very learned. He's got kind of um, filthy clothing compared to the other petitioners there. Uh, He finds his way into the papal palace and uh, can't seem to kind of get his petition to the Pope himself. And so he winds up um, saying a prayer to uh, the Virgin Mary and throwing uh, uh, his petition uh, from the back of a crowd. And of course, it kind of lands right at the Pope's knees. So this is the original Hail Mary pass uh, in my uh, estimation. Um, But anyways, of course, the the petition lands there uh, and uh, the Pope reads it and um, Guthmundur gets his dispensation. And then, you know, once again, it's an instance of uh, Icelandic clerics um, uh, kind of acknowledging uh, the Pope's uh, supremacy over the law and the Pope's capacity to um, bend the law, to make exceptions. But again, using that authority to... um, uh, bolster the um, cult uh, of a local and and very uh, very idiosyncratic bishop saint, uh, in this case, uh, Guthmunder Arson. Mm-hmm. yeah. and or I should say too, the um the the story itself is probably um, based on like a real papal document that was sent from the Roman Curia. Um, to uh, the Archbishop in Netheros in the 13th century. But it said nothing about uh, a dispensation for Guthmander. In fact, it was probably a, um, a document suggesting, kind of gently suggesting uh, that he should resign his office. So there, like a real instance of a document uh, uh, from the Roman Curia gets reinterpreted, reimagined, and kind of adapted, uh, in the um, minds of these Icelandic clerics uh, to wind up saying something totally different from what it probably actually said. Um, uh, in this case, it's, or in the sagas, it, it says that that Guzmender has this kind of blanket dispensation that suspends right. all the laws that would otherwise um, prohibit him from holding the Episcopal office. So uh, uh, just an illustration of your point, uh, uh, That um, these documents uh, can be kind of um, reimagined and reinterpreted uh, along lines along the lines that their issuers did not um, originally intend.
1: Yeah, and that's very interesting. um, You know, to see that local again. uh, I think um, a sub theme for your book, in my eyes, is negotiating Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things, Um, and it's really, it's really. Um, you know, how can we use that power that, that comes to us? And my question, I guess, is um, the power that comes to us from from Rome. Um, my, my question is, I guess it's two questions when it comes to this particular um, example of, you know, using these bulls, these papal bulls that have very important weight on them. Um, you know, when, when we talk about general Christianity and the Christendom and the outreach of the Christendom, um, the the first is are are there any indications that um the people authority uh did that with other areas of Christendom or was Iceland, for example the black sheep of uh of um of of Christendom that they were trying to try to calm the waters and and and, and figure out how do we interpret them into our our Christian culture in many ways
0: mm-hmm yeah, I think um this is a, a question that I wrestled with um throughout uh, the process of, of writing the book the question of just just how anomalous um is Iceland and I think that um ultimately it's not that anomalous actually mm-hmm. um that ultimately the um the majority of clerics throughout medieval Christendom Uh, had the same kind of relationship with the papacy that clerics in Iceland had, um, which is to say that they kind of apprehended papal authority um, through the occasional bull that they received, um, through kind of traveling texts and um, traveling messengers, um, through stories and tales about what the um, Roman Curia was like. Um, and so even as the, um, this, the stories I describe about you know married bishops receiving papal dispensations and so on and so forth um, might seem like these kind of uh, weird, uh, anomalous, idiosyncratic products of this very isolated and weird and anomalous and idiosyncratic clerical culture, um, if you just dig uh, behind the surface a little bit, you'll see that, that the Icelandic bishop sagas are more like kind of prominent accentuations of the prevailing landscape. That is to say, they kind of hold up a a sort of a distorting mirror or a kind of circus mirror to to sort of realities within um, the Roman uh, church at the time. Um, And so, uh, for instance, as I point out in the book, um, there's an instance of, of Priests in Sweden, you know, claiming that they have a privilege that uh, allowed them to um, uh, to get married and to remain with their wives, a papal privilege to this effect. Um, probably not, but actually like real papal legates were willing to kind of cut, you know, small scale deals with um, clerics in Sweden and clerics uh, uh, in Iberia. More or less allowing them to to keep their um, wives so long as they you know paid the uh, appropriate fines. So which is to again say that the the Icelandic stories are really kind of uh, accentuations of, of a culture that's um, already there in medieval Christendom. They're not um, wholly off the map. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of of Jón uh, Okmundarsson, for instance, the the bigamous uh, bishop. Um, there were stories um, circulating uh, throughout um, Christendom at the beginning of the uh, 13th century, end of the 12th century, as uh, Stefan Kutner has pointed out, uh, relating to a, a supposed bigamous archbishop in Palermo in Sicily uh, who received a um, papal dispensation. And these tales are probably um, kind of the inspiration, uh, or at least partially the inspiration, uh, uh, that Jons um, hagiographers draw on. So, um, you know, I try to make the case that um, as, as strange as some of the Icelandic stories um, might seem at first blush, um, when kind of set against their, um, uh, their broader backdrop from the 13th and 14th centuries, they're more like kind of uh, distortions and prominent accentuations rather than kind of pure. Uh, anomalies that are uh, entirely off the grid. So no, I don't think uh, uh, that the Icelandic church is the kind of um, black sheep of uh, medieval Christendom. I think it probably shares a lot more um, characteristics uh, the, with other churches across uh, 13th and 14th century Christendom, other local churches than, um, uh, than historians, or at least a previous generation of historians might be um, willing to admit.
1: Right, right, yeah. And I guess the second part to the theme um, of, of questions is, okay, so you have the clergy in Iceland doing this negotiating, uh, doing a lot of the active work of uh, reframing certain things, uh, enforcing other things, creating the, the network of connectivity and communication with, uh, with Rome. Um, and they see the papal um, documents um, as as important and and crucial for that for for that manner. Was that the same as with uh, the the commoners in Iceland? Um, the, the the Irish um, Irish. I'm sorry. Did the did <laughs> the, the, the Icelandic um, be, be, bishops and f- how, how how did they communicate the importance of that? Of the of that la- language and 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 laws coming from Rome, how do they communicate it with people of, of Iceland yeah that's
0: a great question and uh, one that I would say is is kind of difficult to to get a, a firm handle on um the the bishop sagas themselves I think tell us primarily about kind of clerical culture in the the Norse world so clerical culture not necessarily. Um, lay culture. Um, however, you know, we would point to examples like um, Bishop Auni uh, someone I, I talk about in the book who has a saga devoted to him uh, as well. And he's really a kind of model of a bishop who is very much trying to kind of take the laws uh, uh, of the Roman church and make them work in Iceland. So he's kind of getting these plans. Um, uh, from Rome, for instance, for the, the collection of a new tax to finance the Crusades. Uh, and he's implementing those plans uh, exactly as they were drawn up uh, in the, uh, the papal bulls that he received. This at least is the um, impression that his um, biographer um, wants to uh, lead us with. So there's an instance of, of the kind of Roman church uh, being kind of impressed on the um, the the, the lay folk, the commoners of Iceland uh, in in a really um, um, in a way that that would kind of resonate with uh, Rome's uh, uh, own ideas for how these things should be done but I really see Arni as the kind of um, as the kind of exception uh, in uh, uh, among Iceland's bishops I think uh, other writers of bishop sagas are far more interested in sort of Again, tailoring Roman authority to um, to suit their own um, local agendas, and how those agendas kind of resonate with um, the agendas of, of of lay people in Iceland is is a, a really you know it's a complicated question. So, right. uh, Guthmundur Arason, for instance, uh, certainly had some real uh, devotees uh, among the, the laity, especially the poor. Um, in Iceland, and as did his cult, uh, he also uh, made plenty of enemies among um, secular society um, in Iceland. So it's it's not really a, a simple story in any um, in any way, shape, or form. One point that I think should be made, though, that, that other scholars have made um, very well in, in recent years too, though, is is that. Um, you know, canon law and uh, ecclesiastical legislation, the law of the church is really important for um, kind of thinking about um, mentalities in uh, uh, medieval Iceland, not just for the clergy, but for the laity as well. And that, that's been a point that, um, again, a previous generation of scholars was somewhat um, reluctant to um, acknowledge or engage with.
1: Yeah, and, and thank you for, for both of those answers. Um, so you mentioned a lot about a lot of recent scholars and what they've done about this, um, that they see, I think I have a quote here from the book, that they see, they stress the participation of local society in ecclesiastical go- governments. Um, um, and I guess my my question to you now is, uh, what it, what was the belief before that new wave of scholars trying to see the local um, effect on that? What was the the previous uh, understanding of how this process worked?
0: Yeah, I think there are a couple of, of sort of um, historiographical narratives there that I'm, I'm kind of writing against. And as I uh, point out in the um, the quote that you gave, I'm, I'm far from alone in, in um, disputing some of these um, uh, you know characterizations but the the i would say broadly speaking to to sort of sketch some of the the positions that i'm trying to um to rethink and and write against um there's there's a dominant narrative or first just about the icelandic church itself um that it's sort of gradually being um gradually but inexorably sort of being co-opted by the Roman church over the course of the 13th and 14th centuries, that it's uh, increasingly subject to the Roman church. Um, and again, I think that the story is much more complicated than that. Um, in the, the evidence that I bring forward, there's a lot more negotiation. There's a lot more dynamism. Um, The previous uh, uh, kind of scholarly narrative, again, that I'm I'm trying to write against, uh, sees this as a real era of kind of, um, you know, top down control in the church. So ideas and platforms are kind of uh, formulated uh, in Rome and then they're kind of diffused outwards from Rome and impressed uh, on various local churches. Uh, I see authority in the church functioning in a much more kind of bottom up manner um, where uh, petitioners and messengers and lawyers are you know bringing documents to Rome uh, in search of some kind of um, response and uh, hoping that not necessarily that they can do something for Rome but that Rome um, can do something for them so that's a mentality that I see is as, as really um widespread in the Bishop Sagas and one that I suspect is, is quite um, widespread elsewhere uh, in high medieval Christendom. Um, and another narrative that I'm trying to um, rethink is a narrative about kind of the growth of literacy and the growth of writing, uh, especially in, in government and uh, church government. And there again, I think there's a kind of um, a narrative of um Uh, increasing use of documents uh, in church government and those documents being used to sort of consolidate the authority of um, popes and archbishops at the expense of um, various local churches and local societies. And once again, I see a lot more room for um, negotiation, adaptation, reimagining, reinterpretation. And a point that I try to make, especially in the in the last couple of chapters of the book, uh, is that these documents issued by, by popes and archbishops, on the one hand, they are capable of kind of regularizing and normalizing the government of the, the Roman church, but they're also capable of, of kind of destabilizing the government of, of the Roman church. Uh, so instances of documents being used, um, as we've discussed already for purposes uh, uh, that run entirely contrary to the intent of their issuers Um, documents being, you know, forged uh, uh, another obvious instance of um, uh, writing, destabilizing rather than uh, regularizing government. So this uh, once again is, is a kind of point that I'm, I'm trying to make that the the Roman church was not a, a kind of machine A sort of efficient bureaucratic machine, but uh, the metaphor that I try to use in the conclusion is to sort of try to think of the Roman Church and and Christendom uh, as a kind of greenhouse, right? As a sort of broad um, structure that's capable of nourishing. Uh, uh, a diverse array of, of species, a diverse array of, of local churches, uh, including, you know, this weird Icelandic church with its um, married bishop saints and uh, uh, saints like Guðmundur who go around consecrating wells and springs and so on and so forth.
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah, I think that was a great uh, example of the greenhouse. Yeah, yeah. I, I never... I personally never saw it that way because I, I was never um, exposed to again this particular scholarship that you were that, that that you're talking about about Christendom and the Roman Church, but also um, through the case study of Iceland. Um, and to me, uh, as a scholar that, that works on Byzantium and and more of the high me high medieval Europe as well, um, to me it makes sense. You know, how do you incorporate all of these distant lands and peoples? And to me, it it, it always um, it always was a f- point of fascination trying to really think about how do you, in, in, in that age's technology and, and, and communication systems, how do you really work with these distant lands? And I think this approach r- really, and the examples, of course, that you brought forth and all the sources, um, r- really b- bring it together in many ways um, to really understand how that whole huge system for, for the time worked um, cohesively in, in m- m- most times.
0: <laughs> yeah, a really important facet of that, um, sort of riffing on what you were saying, is, is the, the rescript nature of um, papal government during this era. So by and large, what the um, papacy is doing is responding to petitions brought to it, um, rather than um, issuing its own, you know, edicts and uh, uh, rules, um, uh, just sort of um, uh, forged at the center and then um, dispersed outwards, there are some instances of that. But by and large, uh, papal government is a kind of um, rescript government, and that's that's a really important facet of um, understanding the uh, the nature of. Um, of government uh, in this era and what it's capable of doing and what it's not capable of doing. And basically, I, I think the um, the authors of the Icelandic bishop sagas are really attuned to the kind of rescript nature of, of papal government, and um, they have this sense. And again, it's it's a distorted sense, but it's probably not too far off the mark um, that a messenger um, who journeys to Rome um, with a petition in hand. Um, can more or less uh, often get uh, uh, what he's looking for, Uh, even if that um, rescript that he gets from Rome, you know, contradicts uh, a previous uh, decision um, or uh, something like that. This is not an era in which the the papacy is, you know, Keeping close tabs on the uh, documents that it sends out, um, it doesn't have extensive archives. It's not doing a lot of, um, you know, cross referencing uh, to ensure that uh, you know the the dispensation uh, uh, granted doesn't contradict something that was this, that was issued earlier. And um, Icelandic clerics are very um, capable of of kind of taking advantage of this um, set of circumstances, which they. Um, uh, due to i would say quite uh entertaining effect in the uh, bishop sagas that I write about in in my
1: book right yeah it definitely brought a different light um, at, at least in my eyes um, studying it and 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 the functioning again i think it's very complicated, and 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 it's good to think it as complicated and not as simplistic, um, which I think was what ha- what's, what what happened in the past in many ways. Uh, you know that you have the papal bull and everybody followed it in many ways. Um, I think it brings back the human nature and 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 just how Europe was at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I I think that. Um resonates with what, what I was trying to do in the book. Um, I should say, I mean, I still do find plenty of value in, in some of those older scholarly narratives about the, um, the, the growth of Christendom, but I think they need to be um, tweaked and, and nuanced and um, examined alongside the, um, the, the, the dynamic negotiated evidence that I'm trying to bring forward in, uh, in my book on right. medieval Iceland. Yeah.
1: Perfect, Yes. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, Joel. Um, is is there anything that I forgot to ask you that you think is really crucial uh, from the book?
0: Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think I, I covered the the points that I was hoping to cover and I really uh, uh, enjoyed uh, getting the chance to, to speak with you today.
1: Yes, absolutely. And our audience, of course, can uh, purchase your book and read more of those very in- interesting Icelandic stories themselves. Um, before we go, um, I want to ask you one final question. Um, what are you up to nowadays? uh, And do you have any interesting projects that you're currently working on?
0: Sure. Uh, So I've got a one-year-old son, and I'm trying to spend as much time with him and uh, with my wife as possible. But um, beyond that, uh, I do have uh, some new ideas I'm batting around, some new projects that I'm I'm trying to get a start on. Uh, I've become quite interested in this uh, figure from the 15th century, actually, so moving uh, ahead in time a bit. Uh, His name is... uh, Henrik, or Heinrich, or we would say Henry, uh, Kult Eisen. Uh, he is a, a, a German. Uh, he's a member of the Dominican Order. Uh, he's from the Rhineland, uh, and he winds up becoming uh, Archbishop of Nidaros. Uh, this is the, the primary Archiepiscopal see um, that oversees the Norse world. Uh, he becomes Archbishop of Nidaros in um, 1452. Um, He's an incredibly literate and incredibly um, credentialed um, individual. He's a doctor of theology. He's a major figure at the Council of of Basel in the 1430s. He's an advisor uh, and sort of diplomat for two different popes in the 1440s. And this archbishopric uh, in Norway should really be the kind of culmination of his career of devoted service to the Roman church uh, but nothing goes according to plan. So he he shows up in the north. Um, he's opposed by the king of Denmark, who's the, the leading kind of secular authority at the time, uh, as well as this uh, shadowy character named um, Marcellus, uh, who's the bishop of Skalholt in southern Iceland, uh, even though he never even bothers to visit Iceland. Um, Marcellus is, is in some ways... Um, Henry's sort of doppelganger, or even his evil twin. He's um, also a German. He's um, also a member of the of the mendicant orders, a uh, Franciscan, not a Dominican. Um, uh, he also wants to be uh, Archbishop of Nidaros. But whereas Kalt Eisen is this kind of, um, you know, servant of papal authority and a, a, a rule follower. Um, uh, by the book kind of guy. Uh, Marcellus is a con man. Uh, he's a fraud. He's a swindler. He's a forger. Uh, he gets tossed in jail uh, uh, at a couple different points of his life for forging papal bulls and other things, but still manages to, to secure this um, bishopric in Iceland and just about manages to become um, Archbishop of um, Netheros as well. Um, so, uh, um, uh Eisen is only in the North for a little over a year, but he's very busy, um, while he's there, um, writing, uh, a treatise, uh, responding to questions that he was supposedly posed while he was archbishop gathering documents, uh, and, uh, recording them, um, sort of recording, uh, speeches and, uh other um, writings that uh, form part of his um, his campaign to uh, kind of establish himself in Netheros and his dispute with the king and and so on and so forth and these um, uh, these writings survive in manuscript form that's been uh, kind of partially edited uh, in a, a something called. Uh, Henrik uh, Kalt-Eisen's copybook, uh, copy so uh, his copybook, his notebook, something like that, which really makes for for quite um, fascinating reading. And among the many texts that Kalt-Eisen uh, gathered in his very short time in the North uh, is a chronicle of the bishops of the Faroe Islands, or really it's a, a kind of... Um, couple of, of different documents stitched together and called uh, a chronicle by the, the 19th century editor. So that's a very long way of saying I have a, um, a short project that I'd like to write, uh, about this Faroese Bishop's Chronicle and how it, um, wound up in this archbishop's notebook and how it kind of figures into, um, Kalt-Eisen's plans uh, uh, for the archbishopric and his, um, his uh, uh, sense of his time in the North. Um, that's a short project, but I see this possibly as also morphing into a, a, a quite a bit larger project um, that will kind of trace these two figures of um, Kalt-Eisen, the uh, archbishop, and uh, his, uh, his evil twin, Marcellus, the, the forger and con man, and try to, to tell the story of um, their rivalry and uh, uh, joint desire uh, to become Archbishop in uh, Netheros. So uh, that's a project that I think could, could occupy me for some time and, and something I've been um, really excited about recently.
1: For sure, yeah. Best of luck uh for fin- for working on the project and and uh bringing it to fruition. Uh I'm sure you you staying you're staying in northern Europe, so that's good, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, northern Europe, but uh but with a more um European flavor. Both of these guys are extremely uh, literate, extremely well connected and uh, extremely well-traveled. So just getting a handle on their writings is, um, going to occupy me for some time.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Take care.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Evan. It was a real pleasure.